And he must have a firm grasp of the unchanging message so that he can be counted on both for giving encouragement in sound doctrine and for refuting those who argue against it. WSFI 88.5 FM presents Reclamation Theology with Kyle Clement. It's a wonderful day and time and place in history to be alive. Our Lord has deigned it so. And I think this is one of the things that is, we keep coming back to keys or central themes, let's use the word central themes, of reclamation theology. So a short explanation might help. This is a series of programs on reclamation theology. Several years ago, I was asked to give a parish mission on the four last things. And as I began to research the four last things, what I found was that everything that was written since the mid-1500s, for the purpose of this program, we will call that event the deformation rather than the reformation, because its effect on faith was to deform the faith, to take the clear edges off of the faith and the clear elements off of the faith. And this was a movement that was started by Martin Luther, recently celebrated by many rogue elements in our church, it's amazing to me to watch the adversary's hoof prints through history, and he uses actually the order which at that time the Pope set up to combat the deformation and actually instituted counter-reformation, and that was the main charge of the Jesuits, the Society of Jesus, was to educate people in the true faith. Now here, 500 years later, we've got that very order, the very warriors who were set up to reclaim the faith are celebrating the actual deformation of the faith. We even wrote joint liturgies. I found that before Martin Luther's apostasy, before his open rebellion, and that affected scripture and our faith, before that, we as Catholics proclaimed the faith. We proclaimed it. It was the truth, we knew it was the truth, and we stated it as the truth. Relativism and modernism first start to poke their head into the tent. Those two noses of very huge camels come from, they start to poke inside the tent about this time where the truth is relative to the man to whom it's applied. And relativism is, we do not have a set place in history, but everything is fluid. And so in Reclamation Theology, we're going to go through and take different themes each week. And so one of the things we're going to talk about this week, especially because I think it's center to this and we have Marianologists with us, is we're going to talk about what this movement did to the role of Mary, how she was seen, and who she really is and was, and how we treated her, proclaimed her in her various titles before um the deformation. Before the deformation, she was seen very much as a warrior queen. She was very much a force in spiritual warfare and in our faith. And then she becomes uh, simply an object of devotion. We objectified her in the deformation. Martin Luther objectified her as he objectified all women as simply a means or a mode to an end and an object of devotion. So harsh words, we're going to back them up but this is the state of where our church is today. 
we lose clarity of vision when we engage in political correctness. Now, that's been our response to the deformation. We've got with us Dan Snyder, Marianologist, a longtime friend and warrior in the church, very active in the Liber Cristo movement, which is a movement of the return to true Catholic theology and practice of the healing and deliverance and exorcism ministry in this country. More about Libra Cristo, which is a main vehicle as how we return to the true faith. The Libra Cristo methodology is supported, built around uh, the reclamation theology that we see certain people doing as they return to the census, but the sense of tradition and the sense of what always was. Only in the last generation do we have a real departure, significant departure from Catholic faith. And so I'm going to quote a couple of these people. We'll cite them. Jackson makes a really important observation. He says, if two men start out on a journey and they're one degree off in their direction, at the end of the week, they can still talk. They can still see each other. But by the end of the month, they're too distant for communication. And at the end of 500 years, there's no possibility they can even see each other. And so I think that that's what we're looking at here is is we've been a few degrees off. The census fidelius, those who are sensitive to these movements in in the church, have maintained a straight course and the others have veered significantly. And so now we're at a point where a simple tweaking or course correction is not enough. It's going to have to be radical. Father Chad Ripiger, superior and founder of the Societas Matris Dolarexisime, who has quite a compilation and very prodigious, very uh, prolific, is a good source for the census fidelium, what we're talking about. And people will say, well, that's a traditionist movement. No, it's simply a preservation movement. It preserves the faith as it was. We are no different than the faith has been for centuries. In the last 60 years, we've had significant acceleration in the course deviation with regard to even now we've got people high in the church who are saying this is what the true faith is, and it's a departure from 20 centuries. We must return. This is part of the purification of the church. And so I'd like to hear from Dan this morning about... uh, some of the things, some of the, the treatment of the Blessed Mother uh, in this movement, what has happened to her and the sense of her that we have lost. Good morning, Dan. I'm so glad you could join us. Good morning, Kyle. Yeah, as I listen to you, I think we see going back to the early church. What's interesting is in the, in the early church, you've got scriptural seeds of what doesn't develop and flower into a full Mariology until the medieval period. So in the early in the early church, we see trajectories of Marian thought picking up from Scripture. At the very beginning, the focus was very Christocentric. It was focusing focusing on establishing Christ. But as Christ became under attack, as Christology and the person of Christ, the divinity, the humanity was under attack by various heretical movements, mostly Gnostic and others, different stripes. These things keep resurfacing century after century. But as as Marian thought began to develop into a more systematic way. So by the time we get to Ephesus, as the humanity and divinity of Christ is attacked, then the church responds with a declaration of Theotokos or the mother, the, the, the mother of God or bearer of God. Very simply, Jesus is, Mary is the mother of Jesus, Jesus is, the, is God, Mary therefore is the mother of God. It's called the Ephesus syllogism. And then from there, Marian devotion and Marian thought begins to develop organically. What started in scripture begins to develop organically. And you could even trace out the development of Marian thought into a full-blown Mariology 
over the course of several centuries as it's contrasted with the development of our understanding of Christ. Until the end, until the high point, we see Bernard of Clairvaux, Doctor St. Bernard, Doctor of Mary's Mediation, of whom beautiful things of her numquam satis, I can never say enough. It can never be enough to say to speak of the, of the beauty and glory of Mary and her mediatrics and her as mediatrics of all graces. So we see this full flowering. You mentioned what happened in the Reformation. And interesting, and interesting if you follow develop, for example, the development of our understanding of the Song of Songs, which is a section that I'm working on now. In the Song of Songs, we see very early the Song of Songs was seen as picking up from Israel, Israel and God, the people of God in Israel, both at Sinai and at the institution of the temple in the early rabbinic thought, develops into, once the early church fathers started picking up the Song of Songs, it became Christ in the church. Instead of, instead of God at Sinai, it gets the fulfillment as Christ in the church. And then instead of, instead of the institution of the temple, now with origin and then picking up later with Gregory of Nyssa, we, we see Christ in the soul. Eventually, we see Mariology developing from the end of the Psalms, and we see the perfect human with Christ as bride. She is symbolic of both the perfect human soul and also symbolic of the perfect idealized church. So Christ and Mary, Christ and the Virgin Mary gets expression in monastic life and liturgy, etc. And then with the Reformation or deformation, we see Martin Luther, which is very interesting. Martin Luther's take on the Song of Songs, his view of the Song of Songs that was political, he called it, quote, an enconium of the political order, a praise of thanksgiving to God for the gift of temporal government. So we see this infusion of temporality in this very humanistic approach. And from that point on, what developed in, from the queenship, the brideship, the bridal nature, virgin bride or virgin mother, fruitful bride, we see this development fully in the medieval period and in with the Reformation, all this collapses. And so now what we have is under the false guide of, of ecumenism, so-called, we've been we've had Mariology minimalized to the point where she's our intercessor, or or if if you'll even that will even be granted, she's an intercessor, but largely she's a model of of yes to God, which is foreign, absolutely foreign to to what our understanding from the early church and develop as developed. Even in the early church, 250 AD, we see the subtuum presidium. We fly to you, O Virgin Mary, fly unto your patronage, asking for intercession. We see it, depictions in the catacombs of the Virgin Mary standing in the Orient's position between Peter and Paul, the evangelical church and the hierarchical church, the center of which is, is the Marian church, right, who encompasses both the church at prayer. And we've, we've lost all that. We've lost all that when we reduce her to a biblical figure, not, not unlike any other biblical figure, just another nice person. This is absolutely foreign to the early church fathers. Very, very good point. Succinctly said, I want to hone in on two things that you said. Talk to us about the necessity to diminish Mary in order for our churchmen to become political. And what I'm speaking of is Martin Luther institutes this idea of politics as the highest function of the churchman rather than the salvation of souls. Because once saved, always saved essentially says once the churchman applies the sacrament of baptism, his work of saving souls is done. Now he must be on about the politics. And so the politics of temporal governance. So if you would lead us through a discussion on or, or the points on the diminishment of the role of Mary as necessary to adopt a political view, not only of Song of Songs, but of the churchman's relationship to his flock. 
I think, yeah, I think what most people don't understand about the Reformation, we see it in today's time, this interplay between the church and temporal government has always been present. If you go back just as a flyover of church history, you see there's always this interplay. And sometimes in history, the church is more powerful, and other times the government is more powerful, and they go back and forth jockeying for power. But this is not the way it should be. The church always responds. Ultimate power in God's economy is sanctity. The highest among, um, you know, this is what I think went wrong at the Reformation, is that Historically, now we have a time where governments would jump on top of this movement or that movement to shake off the yoke of Rome, for example. And so Martin Luther introduces this official position towards towards the temporal government. And we see, again, as the church wanes in holiness, we see this direct waning in Marian devotion. So as, as the church revitalized Marian devotion, there's always a growth in sanctity, there's a growth in vitality, etc., so, but you can just see there's just not an interest. I was invited to do a, a four-day retreat at a monastery, and then a week prior, they, they they had to cancel because only one person signed up for the conference. I'm not, uh, I mean, I'm not that horrible, you know. So, I think what happens is there's just not a big interest. We just don't have any emphasis um, from the, from the church, from within the church, from the hierarchy church. There's just this minimization the minimization of, of emphasis on Mary. And so when we, we de-emphasize the role of the Virgin Mary and the bridal nuptial understanding of the church, Mary as model and mold for the soul to grow in sanctity, Mary, as Francis says, standing next to every baptismal font, bringing forth new life to, to, to spiritual life to the soul. When we lose all this stuff that we that was part of our tradition, what's left is church politics. As Benedict Pope Benedict had once said, Cardinal Ratzinger, he wrote, when mystery is removed from the church, all that is left is politics. And so we remove the mystery. The ultimate mystery besides Christ is the woman who bore Christ, the Theotokos. She bore Christ. She, in her humanity, brings forth divinity. She preserved in all purity, brings forth the the human and the divine God-man. As we minimize these mysteries, what's left is we're grasping for political power. That's exactly and precisely what Benedict was saying. I think that we're seeing that played out now. You you can't discuss Reclamation theology and ignore the wreck that is before us, uh, that which must be reclaimed. But I would like to make two points and you get your observations on these points. Everything relates back to spiritual warfare. There's many in our church modernly who do not like and disdain the militant language, the language of military. But it's there. It's it's there. It's game on in Genesis, and it runs all the way through John's Apocalypse, 12th chapter. That's the thing. And before we go to break, and over the break, we can contemplate the following. And that is this. In the old rite of baptism, the couple, having gone to confession, present the child. They come to the door of the church, and they knock on the door of the church The priest greets him there and he says, what do you ask of the church? So the dialogue begins on the threshold of faith. The dialogue begins to conform the soul. The theology in these old rites is huge and it was systematically removed starting in the 50s by the Freemasonic element. Not not speculative theology, not speculation, just fact, especially now as we look back. So the couple begins a dialogue with the priest, with Christ, at the threshold of the church, what do you ask? Baptism. And so the first set of exorcisms start right there, which is to 
address the impediments to grace, the prior claims on this soul, and then we move inside the church. At the narthex, there's another series of questions and exorcisms because we're approaching the font. Once we get to the to the font, there's yet the third set of exorcisms, and there is the the um, affirmation by the couple that this child will be raised in faith. Now there's the inclusion of a godparent with strict criteria of who these godparents are, who they are in the faith. We're going to come back and pick that up after the break because who should have a voice at the table? Not all. But the godparents assure that in the event of the temporal failure of the parents through incapacity or whatever natural occurrence, they will ensure the spiritual commitment to the soul. The baptism is done. The anointing is done. The indelible mark is made. The child is sealed. And then the census fidelium, the couple takes the child to the Marian niche and consecrates the child to Mary. Hi, Kyle. I apologize. We're going to have to take a short break. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the voice of two of our favorite people from the Libro Cristo movement, Kyle Clement and Dan Snyder, his colleague. And we'll be right back. So stay tuned. This is Wes Riccio from the Holy Family Catholic Bookstore. If you have a child, grandchild, or godchild being baptized, receiving their first Holy Communion, or being confirmed, remember that Holy Family has the area's largest selection of gifts, accessories, and supplies to make their special day more memorable. For baptism, we have cradle medals, baby Bibles, wall crosses, and nightlights. We have beautiful baptismal gowns and accessories, as well as invitations and cards. If you have a First Holy Communion in your family, we have a wide variety of mass books and gift sets, rosaries and medals. We have exquisite veils for the girls and ties for the boys, along with all of the necessary party supplies. Our suggestions for new confirmants include personal-sized Bibles, prayer books, and other spiritual readings that can follow them through their lifetime. And don't forget the godparents and sponsors. We have gifts and cards for them as well. The Holy Family Catholic Bookstore is at 9249 Old Green Bay Road, Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin. More information is available on Facebook. Want an example of a false sense of security? How about relying on the life insurance you get through work to pay for all of your final expenses? Do you have plans to retire someday? Or do you plan on working for that company for the rest of your life? The fact is, you may lose your life insurance when you leave a company. I'm Matt Tomlinson from Catholic Financial Life, and I invite you to share your hopes and dreams with me. To discuss your options for protecting your family, call me at 847-548-MATT. That's 847-548-6288. Products and services not available in all states. Well, hello and welcome back, everyone. You're listening to the second episode of Reclaiming the Faith, Reclamation Theology. Our host today is Kyle Clement, who is no stranger to WSFI listeners, and his colleague, Dan Snyder. And Kyle, we just left off and had to interrupt you to take a break, but you were on a roll, you two. You're both on a roll. Well, we'll rejoin our couple who has presented their child for baptism, and they've uh, gone through the elements of the rite with the priest, the rite of baptism, the old one, where they meet at the church. There's a series of three exorcisms culminating with a baptism and the anointing, the indelible mark, the baptismal promises repeated by the parents and the godparents on behalf of the child, and the inclusion of the godparents in a very, very significant role. It's not a ceremonial role. It's a very significant role. And they have a criteria, 
And so we're going to come back and pick that up. But in finishing the day at the church for the couple who is presenting their child uh, to the Lord, the last visit they make is at the Marian niche, at at an image of the Blessed Mother, whereby they kneel with the child and they'll consecrate this child to the Blessed Mother. Why is this important? Oh, it's just a quaint little custom. It absolutely is not. Uh, In exorcism, Dan and I both have had the opportunity to sit in many solemn sessions and assist exorcists around the country. I've been involved in the training of exorcists for over 15 years. It's amazing to me the misconceptions with regard to how important that Marian consecration is. Because quite often we will hear people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, even in their 60s, talking of a life of depravity, a life of debauchery, a life of perdition, but that something was always there protecting them. Something was always there. And so with the investigation, and we investigate somewhere close to a thousand cases a year, almost always in this long-term absence, we hear that two things are present. One is that there was a consecration to Mary uh, with regard to their baptism. It's amazing how effective this is, and the Blessed Mother takes that seriously. Um, the, the Blessed Mother takes this very seriously, and she is present to that soul. We see it borne out time and time and time again. The other one is the power of an intercessor. Um, the ignorance of the scriptures, because of their translation and because of everything that was lost and without the overlay or filter of the census fidelium, renders us almost blind and moot in this arena of activity. And so we've got to recapture some of the Catholic practices and understanding. And I'm going to go to Dan for this, especially with regard to the role of, of intercession in bringing the possessed person into the presence of Christ or bringing Christ into the life of that person, because they're essentially beyond reach. The demon has got them beyond reach through practice or through um, whatever uh, negligence at the least, but usually deviant practice. And then the Blessed Mother's present to them. Dan, would you speak to, to her role as warrior queen in this particular area? It's an excellent question, and it's, and it's one of those phenomenon de facto in spiritual warfare. I wanted to back up before I answer your question as a quote that I wanted to share with you, a good Jesuit, St. Robert Southwell. Christianity is warfare, and Christians are spiritual soldiers. So we've lost this idea, as you said earlier, on, on being militant for Christ. We've, the, even, being, even the phrase church militant is, is downplayed often in many circles. We are soldiers for Christ. This is what St. Louis de Montfort says. In the the heavens, Mary commands the angels and the blessed. As recompense for her profound humility, God has empowered her and commissioned her to fill with saints the empty thrones from which the apostate angels fell by pride. The will of the Most High who exalts the humble is that heaven, earth, and hell bend with good or bad will to the commandments of the humble Mary, whom he made sovereign of heaven and earth, general of his armies, treasurer of his treasuries, dispenser of his graces, worker of his greatest marvels, restorer of the human race, mediatrix of men, the exterminator of the enemies of God, and faithful companion of his grandeurs and triumphs. I don't think I could say it any better than that. Saint, of the, you know, Saint Louis de Montfort, Saint of the Church. She, she, she commands angels. She is. He says she's the general of the armies, exterminators of the enemies of God. Listen to those titles. We've lost this idea. The census fidelium has not. You sit in pews 
a daily mass and you see some of these holy women, you'll see these little cenacles, the rosary cenacles, uh, praying for the church, praying for priests with their heads bowed and their heads covered. You see holy women. These are the warriors in the church that we've lost sight of. It's not the intellects and the, and the theologians that are doing battle. It's it's these women doing battle. Uh, and, and they're very, very Marian. It's the rosary. It's the rosary. Remember, when, when Our Lady gave the rosary to St. Dominic, she says that this is a powerful defense against enemies of the church and against evil of the future, future enemies and future errors. And I think we're in that time period now. So, so praying the rosary, intercessory prayer is extremely important. It's what we do as the mystical body, uniting our prayers with the church suffering, the church triumphant, and now us together with the church militant while we're still on earth, militating under our common banner led by Our Lady and St. Michael. It's very beautiful theology that, that the average guy gets it. The average guy in the pew, your daily communicant, your, one, your, 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 your person consecrated to the Holy Virgin Mary that, that un- understands the spiritual battle very much. Thank you. I want to return to a theme that I think I'm hearing and I want to make sure, and that is this, is when the church, the lay faithful, are praying in the way that you're saying. They're using the rosary as the broadsword, uh, the the main claymore, the main weapon in spiritual warfare, not only to conform their souls to God, but to be God's presence in the world. Um, Talk to me a little bit about what we see developing with regard to the animosity of the politically inclined clergy, the politically inclined churchmen who are actually speaking with disdain for those of us in the lay faithful, those of us who are in the seats, those of us who are, are doing the prayers. And, and speak to that if you would. You and I have had some private conversation, but it's once there is a disdain or an animosity between the officer corps and the enlisted man, tell, talk to me about how the military falls apart. Yeah, it, it certainly breaks down. When I was in the military, it was after Vietnam, and the NCO corps had broken down and the officer ranks had to kind of shore it up. And, and when the NCO Corps breaks down, the officers step in. But when the officers break down, the NCOs have to step in. And, and a strong, you know, you know, in the military, the NCO Corps is the backbone of the Army. And the backbone of the church are the spiritual warriors that, that are in tune. This understanding, I think we should define our terms, the census fidelium, the sense of the faithful. There's a distinction between the census fidelium and the census fide, the sense of my individual understanding of the faith, but the sense of the faithful collectively. God pours out uh, um, his grace upon the church that that we get it. And it's, what's amazing is, is you see a disconnect oftentimes between what's coming out in the hierarchies or some of the statements from the hierarchy or some of the priests and what the lay faithful. You know, we sometimes we just kind of look and say, what what are you talking about? And I think coming back to the understanding of the Marian church, it, it, it pulls us away. Going, going back to that quote from Benedict, Benedict the 16th, when we eliminate mystery from the church, all that's left is politics. And so as we lose the mystery of scripture by, by approaching it simply as a, a historical document to be read with the tools, enlightenment tools of criticism, historical, literary, etc. All those tools are fine, but but if you if you eliminate the breath of the of the Eastern and the Western Church breathing through patristic over the periods 
allegorical and typological understanding of Scripture, and you remove the mystery of Scripture, what you're left is, well, let's just read it in light of the sociopolitical situation of our times. When you remove the mystery of the woman who bore God, the one who preserved was preserved in all grace, the one who from Genesis 3.15 was prophesied to crush the head of the serpent. This is why in our statues, in, in the various images, we see her standing on the head of a serpent. When we lose the mystery of both Scripture and the mystery of the Virgin Mary, what we reduce to is a socio-political construct that we're striving to somehow pigeon-toe or toenail whatever our, 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 our understanding of the church into through the socio-political lens. And it does a great disservice. The analogy I think I've heard you use before, we're sitting there in this castle, and, and it's highly, we've got 30-foot walls and bulwarks, and it's totally impenetrable. And a guy's standing out there with a stick throwing stones at us. And we have all the weapons at our disposal to, to, to take out the enemy. But what do we do? We open the gates and we go outside and try to fight with sticks with them. And we abandon our weapons. And the weapons that we have are the, are the mysteries of the church, the sacraments, devotion to Our Lady, right? Scripture as a weapon, reading Scripture spiritually, entering to, into, the, into the narrative of Scripture and using Scripture as prayers, Lexio Divina in the monastic tradition. These mysteries, as we reduce them and minimalize them or place them aside as, as you know, past events that are no longer relevant, what we end up with is grasping for some sorts of meaning. You know, I remember when, when Benedict was elected Pope, they, the, one of the announcers on TV says, well, the church has to find a way to become more relevant. Whatever that means, the church needs to be, be the most irrelevant institution according to worldly standards. We need to be pursuing holiness and doing battle against evil. You have been listening to WSFI 88.5 FM, Reclamation Theology. A copy of this broadcast will be made available at WSFICatholicRadio.org.